0: Food is a really powerful narrator of culture, right? Who was here before? Who came here? What happened next? Where are we going? And and so like California, for example, was so special to me in my my culinary roots and my approach because California is a melting pot of, of cultures. And you've been there and we've talked about it. But you've got this, this melting pot of cultures and it's backed up with this very strong agricultural resource. And But then because of all of that, there's a, there's a little bit of a rebellious kind of nature to it. Everyone in California tends to color outside the line. You know, you want to do Mexican-Chinese food? Okay, fine, let's do it. And then, and then New England is so humble and so pragmatic and so honest. It's so simple. Drawing, drawing bounty from from the Atlantic Ocean, the bountiful Atlantic Ocean, and then on top of that, you know, you have to be resourceful because there ain't shit that grows there in the winter time. There's not much, and then there's the American South, which has been we had this ongoing love affair for the past, you know, over ten years now, which is is such a beautiful, rich. All, albeit painful story about its food and its food ways and and where it came from and how it evolved to what it is now. Southern food is not all fried chicken and barbecue. It's far from that. You know, there's there's a be- there's a beautiful history of of food preservation in 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 like the Appalachian parts of, of the country. There's there's that beautiful rice culture that peppered with with African history along the coast. All the food scenes to me they're all they're all so different and beautiful, but what I love about them is they all tell a story because that's what food does. Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown.
1: A behind the scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs and bartenders who create them. With your host Emmanuel My guest today is Chef Levin Wallace, based in Nashville, Tennessee. At the beginning of the pandemic, this executive chef had to switch gears and start a new business baking unique pretzels. The name of his business is called Fat Belly Pretzels. Welcome to episode 69 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel Laroche. And if you are new to this podcast, I have been working in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the U.S. And every other week, I share the true story, successes and challenges from renowned culinary leaders and how their cultural heritage shape their creative process. You can find all the episodes of the podcast on the website flavorsunknown.com. And please follow us on Spotify and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Chef Levin Wallace talks about the future of the industry, the difference in being a chef at boutique hotel, private restaurants and fast casual businesses. He is passionate about building relationship with local farmers and purveyors, and he describes the difference and commonalities of the food scene between California, the Northeast, Louisville and Nashville. Hi, chef. Uh, how are you? Hey, how are you, Manuel?
0: Thanks for having us. Too really love the podcast. I've heard a couple of episodes and I really enjoy it. So thanks so much for having us.
1: Oh, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. So let's go right into it. So you are based, you know, in Nashville area, and you have created recently a brand new concept called Fat Belly Pretzels. <laughs> so yeah. can you talk to us about it? You know what what is it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, fat belly pretzel, as as the name implies, they're these, these pretzels that have skinny arms and a big fat belly, just like me. So I named the I named the product after me. You know, fat belly pretzel, the, the concept is really kind of born from this desire to to make people happy and, and it kind of brought me for me it was a it was an aha moment of oh, this is again a reminder of why I've been in the food service industry for you know, over 20 years. You know, with, with the way that COVID happened, I mean, I've been, like I mentioned, I've been a professional chef for my entire life. That's all I've ever done professionally for work and also passion, of course. I mean, it's just it's what it is. And when COVID came, I was actually in the process of partnering with some, with some associates, some, some people, some very, very talented people who I hold in high regard in Louisville, Kentucky and i was bouncing between nashville and louisville and we were going to open a few restaurants and a, few, a couple of concepts one of them was going to be a kind of a southern mexican restaurant through a california lens cuz that's my those are my roots i'm from los angeles california but and you know then covid hit and everybody just the whole world had to stop and and nobody felt it more than the russian industry so i came back home and unemployed for the first time in my life no one's hiring no one's hiring, you know, executive chefs or you know the kind of you know jobs that that I you know grown into over the past a decade plus. And so I was just kind of bumming around my house a little bit, and I was starting to get a little bit uh, a little down on myself. And yeah, I decided, it's a tough
1: time. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You know, it's a tough time. There's a lot on your mind. What are you going to do? What's going to happen to the industry? And I decided to do what I know how to do best, which is do something for someone else that usually works nine times out of 10 to get me out of any kind of situation. And so I made these pretzels for my, for my kids and they came out of the oven and they're just, the kids were so happy. And my wife was like, Oh my God, these are amazing. And we're having a really good time. And they've got these, this big belly and and there's a, you know, we make a, like a lame kind of a slash on the belly and it has a big, has a big smile on them, you know? And it was, everyone's like, Oh man, these are really great. And uh, yeah, my wife had this great idea. So hey, let's have a let's have a bake sale this weekend. And uh, you know, people started showing up, and here we are, almost almost a year later. And, wow, yeah, and yeah, and having a really good time. And and and.
1: So it's a direct, know. really like a direct outcome from, you know, from the pandemic, and and it's really you pivoted on you know what you were supposed to do, but could not do because of the situation, and you know, transform like, like a a great comfort food that you were doing at home and make it to um, accessible to, you know, many.
0: Yeah. And that, and that was, that was the thing too. It was that, you know, when we, so we had a couple of, you know, kind of pop up pre-order, Hey, you know, very under the table, like, Hey, you know, set up a Facebook page or something like, Hey, come by this address from two to four. And then we started to see that every time you, you handed someone this pretzel, And you mentioned the comfort food part. Everybody's got this. Just gets so excited, you know, because everyone's got a story behind a pretzel. And you know, oh, my grandpa used to take me to the ballpark, and we would always share a pretzel. Or when I lived in New York, after a long day at work, I would get a pretzel and get in the subway. And then everyone has all these stories and this kind of like attachment to to a pretzel, which I, you know, had no idea was there, but but it is. And it was it's that human connection that that thing that. I mean, who doesn't love a hot pretzel? It's kind of hard to get bummed out when you get a hot pretzel, you know, like there's nothing. With a nice nothing,
1: cheesy sauce on it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cheese sauce <laughs> or mustard or whatever you want to do. Yep. Sure. And, and so that's kind of how, it's really how fat belly pretzel started. And we adapted this little logo or saying that it's, it's spread, spread love like mustard, you know, fat belly pretzel spread love like mustard because it's, it's at the time which it was born. The company or the, the the project was born at a time when we all really kind of needed to just stop. I mean, think about a year ago, where we were as as a society, as everyone. You know, there's so much uncertainty going on. There was all this like division going on. Like, let's just stop. Focus on what's important. You know, and what are, what's important to me, especially in food, is things that are you know handmade, homemade, simple, good food made from real ingredients. You know, I've always had a, a kind of a thing with you know food that's obviously not made by a human being. You know, you get you go to the mall and you get a pretzel, or you go to the ballpark and you get a pretzel and you know that thing came out of a box. I'm not into that, (laughs) you know?
1: But did you have to adapt a bit? Because, you know, you had as you mentioned before, you had so many years of being like an executive chefs and into, you know, different business model. We are going to talk about that a bit later. But definitely, you know, fine dining as well. So and now you have your own company and you're doing you know this this uh, pretzel it's probably like um, a shock i mean it's really different from what you used to do before how did you did you manage that personally
0: i personally am am enjoying every every twist and turn pun intended with with the whole situation well because here's here's the thing and, and and you know outside of outside of the the obvious you know the financial downfall and and of course the the human tragedy part of what's transpired since covid came to came here is that particularly in in the, in the food service and chefs restaurateurs you know piv- that's all we do is pivot it's all all we've ever done is adapt sure. and, and 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 you adapt and you overcome and you know sometimes yeah yeah absolutely sometimes the dishwasher doesn't show up you know sometimes the 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 walk-in goes out in the middle of service and then you lost you know two thousand dollars worth of product or whatever it is it's what you do and how you deal with it and so what's been amazing about this whole process is that rather than having to manage this multifaceted, you know whether it's it's a couple of, of high volume restaurants with their own chefs that report to me and and you know, we're gonna work on many development and we're gonna work on all these things and leadership and and whatever it may be, P and L the whole the whole gamut. It's a very hyper focused end result. You know, we're gonna make some really, really good prep tools. We're gonna to take all that stuff I mentioned and apply it and, and however it works, right? I mean, I'm still I'm making PLs for my for my sure. very some very deal. small my very small business, right? But, but but we're going to get rid of all the noise and just focus on one simple thing, which is doing the best thing that we can right now in front of us and trying to make other people happy.
1: You're created kind of like a fast casual, you know, type of concept or it could go that way. So I, I've seen a lot of chefs that are testing like, you know, a lot of fast casual uh, concepts. So. But how do you maintain a certain level of quality and as well, you know, ethic when to avoid that? In fact, that is a confusion of genre with, you know, fast food. And it's it's not fast food. So how you do that?
0: I think it, boil, it boils down to, to core values, right? Everything boils down to a core value. What what is, what is the mission statement? You can't translate something you don't have going on, right? Like you can't, I can't tell you that I'm all about Local, handmade quality food and then turn around and open a can of cheese sauce and try and pass it off as, as is. You know, that's just how it works. It's a really complicated question. Here, here's why. I think that, that we're in this beautiful time period. It can be, look at it that way, look at it as, a, as an opportunity to grow and reset, a hard reset to what we do and how we've done it. And not just for chefs, and operators and restaurateurs, but also for customers and consumers. You know, I think that there is a conversation that needs to be really considered from a from a consumer level to a, to an operator level, because things are not the way that they used to be. Somewhere along the lines of that, you know, you can't you can't disguise, you know, McDonald's for for something that's farm to table, right? So. It is, it is about integrity of ingredients. It is about, you know, integrity of prep, of preparation. But then finding that balance because of, of the change that is happening culturally, right? With technology, with online ordering and delivery and all these things, all these things need to be rethought. But fast casual and translating those things, you know, it's, it's, it's a delicate balance. It's definitely a delicate balance to be able to pull that off. With the that's there, again, from the consumer level, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's a little bit of gray area when you walk into a fast casual restaurant that because things are quick, and typically more value minded or value oriented, you know, you kind of expect a certain experience. And, you know, McDonald's is McDonald's, or I don't even want to mention their name, but you know, fast casual is not fast food, <laughs> in my opinion.
1: And is is it what where you are going to take your your concept? You know, growing the concept in in the future as a fast visual concept.
0: I think that the environment dictates that, and I think that's really where we're all kind of headed at this point. The generation that is coming up now, the generation of consumer and diner, is, is doesn't want to sit and have a full experience. You may want a little bit of that, but you know, we. I, I think I think Fat Belly Pretzel. You know, if you ask me, because we're, we're all over the board, <laughs> you know, everything Everything we do is a hybrid. Everything Fat Belly Pretzel does is a hybrid. It comes from, you know, my experience, my my vast and varied experience from fine dining to boutique hotels, to fast casual, to large scale, you know, catering operations or multi unit operations. But yet also it's a bakery. So we're doing very small things. but. Our menu has grown from just this this humble like, hey, we're just going to make a couple pretzels and make some people happy. Well, then we start drawing inspiration from our from from my love affair with the American South, from the inspiration that I get from the technique of European bakeries, which you know, I mean, it doesn't mm-hmm. get more European bakery than the pretzel. It's mean, a matter sure. of fact, German, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, well, actually, Italian. Believe it or not. Believe it or not. Yeah. Uh Um, mm -hmm. It was an Italian. Well, I mean, Italian by proxy. It was an Italian baker, is, is, I believe the recorded, but he, this was, this was also in that northern part, closer, closer to Germany. But yeah, but still, I mean, when you think of a pretzel, you think of a German, you think of a German thing. So, you know, drawing inspiration from where we are and, and, you know, paying homage to the techniques from the European bakeries and our menus expand to have, all kinds of stuff. Now we do these pretzel danishes and we have, you know, these pretzel crunch cookies where we take the, we take the pretzels and we, and we cut them up and we make a a malted pretzel crunch and we put that into a chocolate chip cookie. So you have like this American, you know, funky, you know, collaboration thing going on, you know, this pretzel muffoletta, which is also, you know, inspired by, by Italian food, but it's, but it's very much a Louisiana New Orleans thing. So we draw those inspirations, and I think ultimately, if I had to put a, a, my thumb on it, the, the future of Fat Belly could be a bakery slash delicatessen. And when I say delicatessen, I mean like the true European, the true European kind of thought of a delicatessen, which is more like a market slash. You know, hey, you should try these jams and jellies. We think they're the best ones that they're out there. You know, or here's this really great ham that somebody makes here in Tennessee, and he only makes it three times a year. So, you know, try this. So, I don't know. We just, we, I mean, I love food so much, Emmanuel. If you haven't picked that up from our, our conversations that we've had, yes, it's really hard to put the, the eggs in one basket. You know, I just want to spread that love like mustard.
1: <laughs> Very good. We can hashtag that. So, yeah, that
0: is that is our hashtag.
1: I know, I know. <laughs> so where where do you see the industry going?
0: Oh man, I have dear friends that have either closed their restaurants or on the brink of closing. But I think prior to prior to March twenty twenty, there was a lot of noise going on, not only in in the restaurant world, but just in the world in general. And what, what essentially I think has happened has been a a really hard reset for a lot of restaurants and, and again, and how we do and what we do, I think it's time to focus on what is essential to our industry, you know, and again, just, I think that's, that's what I was, I was trying to, to get at earlier. With the with the conversation between or the relationship between c- consumer or customer and a restaurant and restaurant tour, there still is a lot of noise out there. And now more than ever is a time that we need to advocate for uh, small independent restaurants and restaurant tours. Otherwise, our industry could very well end up being kind of a, a large, big boys, big players only. And that's pretty, That's pretty one-sided and that's not what, you know, gastronomy is about. That's not what, that's not what the food industry is about. It's not a one-sided thing. It's not a, it's not a one-stop shop.
1: I mean, it's interesting what you are saying here, obviously, but you, you just used the, the word, you know, gastronomy. Do you feel that with those changes that are happening at the moment that gastronomy is over?
0: I don't think so. I really don't. I, and I don't think that it ever will just just because the need to, to feed, to nurture, to create will always be there and I think that gastronomy won't necessarily go away or you know I don't want to say die that sounds so you know kind of dramatic but I think it's always evolving you know and I think that what, what we are seeing what we're, what we're witnessing is kind of a, the sentimental end of a time period. You know that was very beautiful and very inspiring for a lot of chefs. Myself, I, I mean, I certainly look back to you know, I mean, think about when when the French Laundry cookbook came out. Like what a like that was like this like tablet that came down from the mountains. We we're all looking at this stuff. Like wow, this is incredible. That stuff is kind of slowly, kind of you know, coming to a little bit of a halt. But at the same time, you know, I think that it will continue to grow and evolve because it always wasn't that way. You know, it was almost as if we we just kind of went through this beautiful Renaissance period, so to speak. And after the Renaissance came the the Age of Enlightenment. So, you know, I think that. I think that what I'm excited for what what the future of gastronomy will be, and I'm willing to accept that it may not be what it used to be. But I know that, that whatever it is, it will continue to inspire and grow. So as long as people are inspired by food, and I think that'll never go that'll never go away.
1: You talked about you know the creative aspect. You talk about that obviously you know a chef has this artistic you know mind. On the other hand, you share, and it was obvious when you said it, this passion that you have about simple things and things that you are sharing, you know, with, you know, your customers. And that's the experience that you have at the moment, you know, at the Fat Belly Pretzels where you are handing, you know, those delicious, warm pretzels, you know, to someone. So you have those two different schools of thoughts and what is the most important aspect for you as as a chef between this beautiful artistic creation versus like this i would say simple execution that connects people
0: if if i if i'm coming to the table with the right perspective then i can have both you know i can make something that is truly beautiful to me that celebrates the whatever deep connection that i that i think that i have or that i feel for a certain cuisine, or whatever that inspiration was, or maybe you know I'm so inspired by the turnips that the farmer grew just a few hours away, and they're so beautiful that I have to come up with this you know study in turnips with twelve different preparations or whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, though, as as a chef, whatever it is that I'm doing or making it has a, has a deep and personal impact on somebody else. So ultimately you know at the end of the day i want that person to enjoy and feel something you know if, if they if they're just as if they have just as so much of an aha moment as i had then that's a double win but at the end of the day i want to make that person feel good i think that the connection with people in my opinion is where the real magic is in this industry and so i think that those two the, the creativity and the connection with people they're hand in hand You know, you got to have a balance because if I'm only doing things just to satisfy me, well, at the end of the day, I'm only satisfying myself.
1: And you may may not have a business at the end. Correct. Yeah, exactly. So you have been chefs and, and executive chefs in a different, very different business models. You have been in like restaurant in part of the hotel. You have been in private restaurants, fast casual concepts and now you are you know a food entrepreneur so can you tell us what are like the pros and the cons you know that of all those different you know models
0: sure you know i've been i've been very very blessed and fortunate to to kind of cover that that spectrum of a food service industry my experience with Particularly with boutique hotels, you know, I never, I never worked for like one of those big box type hotels, you know, like by the airport or something like that. It's not to discredit what they do because everything has its, its place in this, in this big puzzle. But, you know, my, my experience with boutique hotels or in that kind of, in that kind of setting was really fundamental from a hospitality perspective and my growth as a food and beverage professional. You know, those kind of situations to me is like, really tries to encompass the hospitality piece right where it's not like in in I've seen in some not all but in some private restaurant situations where a guest request can be met with like you know hell well we don't do that here you know this is not what we do to a certain extent I mean I understand and, and respect people's art and and their statement and You know, I'm not going to walk into, you know, a a Southern, a Southern American restaurant and, and ask, Hey, can you make me some sushi? You know, like, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. But the, the business and financial operational knowledge that I picked up working in something outside of just something that was just food focused, only food focused was huge. That translates to being a good chef, operator, owner, manager, Whatever it may be, is understanding the fundamentals of business. So I think that that's, that's huge. You know, there's this, this kind of a, a spectrum with chefs. You know, there's like the, the artist creative type. And then there's like the scientist mathematician type. And if you lean too much on either side of that, I think there'll be some drawbacks to it. You know, I know some, some of the most, cre- I know some really, really creative and talented chefs that can make the most beautiful, delicious food and they can't read a PL to save their lives or their livelihoods. And on the same, on the same note, you know, I know guys that are, are so good at running their business, but you know, it, it, it almost becomes a formula and it's formulaic and their food has, has no, has no soul, you know, it, it's just like, I think it's important to be right in the middle. So th- to me, that, that was, that's been my approach is, and it's, it's the same way that I approach cooking is I want if I'm going to make something like mac and cheese, you know, I want to understand everything about the mac and cheese before I, I, before I start freestyling. And that's what I'm going to end up doing anyway. But at least I know the parameters and where it came from. So, you know, I think the, I think the drawbacks, the downsides are really what you make of them. Right. I think that there's been from my experience, there's been something very beneficial to take away from my experience as a fast casual operator, as a corporate executive chef, as a culinary director, as a line cook. Every single every single experience has something for you to pick up and put down.
1: But was it easy for you to move to one model to another? Because you know, we we love not only in this country, it's true everywhere as human beings, we love to put labels on people. Mm-hmm. And 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 the idea is that this is as well a, a specific mindset, you know, and ways of working for each, you know, situation here that and and sometimes, you know, individuals have a hard time to adapt, you know, from one to another. So coming yeah. from like a restaurant to into like an hotel, you know, mindset or, you know, a fast casual, it's, it's really different because you are using different skills and
0: yeah 100% and and again you you nailed it it's it's it boils down to the individual right but i think that if you can if you can adjust your perspective and you look for the similarities rather than the rather than the differences then it's really really quick to adapt right like just like with with the pandemic and all of a sudden things are not normal anymore well then rather than focusing on the fact that, well, that's not how I'm used to doing it and that's not how it goes, because that's how I've always done it at the last place, it's not the same to put out a banquet for, you know, two hundred people than it is to, you know, serve three thousand people on a on a you know, and keep, you know, low ticket times and quick and high check and just turn it out for a fast casual situation. But it kind of is if you apply the same principles. You know, whether that's, you know, quality ingredients, good leadership. I think leadership is, is the number one thing, right? Going back to, to you know, if, if your head is in the right place, it's kind of hard to, to fail. It's really all about perspective. All of it.
1: You mentioned that you are originally from, you know, from California. Then you end up after that in the in the northeast in the vineyards, uh, you know, area. Then you, you move to Louisville in Kentucky. Now you're yeah. in Nashville in Tennessee. So, I I travel like all around the country. But I I'm curious to see your point of view on how would you describe, like the the food scenes at these different locations, and and how do you see them, you know, like different from one another?
0: Sure. Well, it's, it's fascinating how, how different things can be and yet how much of it is the same. And I think that food is a really powerful narrator of culture, right? Who was here before? Who came here? What happened next? Where are we going? And, and so like California, for example, was so special to me in my, my culinary roots and my approach. Because it's a, California is a melting pot of, of cultures, and you've been there, and we've talked about it. But you've got this this melting pot of cultures, and it's backed up with this very strong agricultural resource, right? There's nothing. I mean, California produce makes everyone in the world jealous, right? And and but then because of all of that, there's a there's a little bit of a rebellious kind of nature to it. Like you, you, everyone in California tends to color outside the lines, and you've got. You know, you want to do Mexican Chinese food? Okay, fine, let's do it. You know? And then and then New England is so humble and so pragmatic and so honest. You know, it's so simple. Drawing drawing bounty from from the Atlantic Ocean, the bountiful Atlantic Ocean. And then on top of that, you know, you have to be resourceful because there ain't shit that grows there in the wintertime. <laughs> There's not much. So I like to, I like to go old school, right? And you asked me about the food scene in places that I've been. You know, I'm real quick to look at what's the food that's being eaten here. What's, what's from here? Not so much what's the hot restaurant doing because those hot restaurants are nine times out of 10 drawing inspiration from what's being, what was being done here before. You know, like what are the roots and the culture there? And then there's the American South which has been we had this ongoing love affair for the past, you know, over 10 years now, which is, is such a beautiful, rich, albeit painful story about its food and its food ways and, and where it came from and how it evolved to what it is now. And, you know, Southern food is not all fried chicken and barbecue yeah. and shit like that. You know, it's, it's far from that it's far from that you know there's there's a there's a beautiful history of of food preservation in 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 like the appalachian parts of of the country you know Um, there's there's that beautiful rice culture that's that's just you know peppered with with african history Mm -hmm. uh along the coast you know
1: low country Um,
0: yeah low country stuff yeah so you know, all the food scenes to me, they're all they're all so different and beautiful. But what I love about them is they all tell a story. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's what food does. Food food tells tells the truth. Stylistically, California is 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 my heart. You know, uh-huh. again, it's it's that's that's where San Francisco and California is where I, I truly fell in love with this idea of like, hey, I want to cook for the rest of my life. That's that's the number one thing I want to do. You yeah. know it's it's what I do. It's what I do when I'm not doing it for work. And you know we, we were we were talking before the podcast, and you asked me if I cook at home and And yeah, I'm the chef in residence here. you know i I cook seven meals out of out of ten
1: so and I think like in California, this is where, as well, you started to develop a relationship with like the purveyors and the farmers over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have developed like this uh, great understanding of local ingredients. Yeah. So, can you tell us a little bit about this approach that you have with you know the farmers, and 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 how do you build you know this close relationship and almost like like collaboration, I would say, with them?
0: Yeah, and I think I think collaboration is 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 like, really really. You, you took the words out of my mouth. I've had the pleasure and the opportunity to. A lot of the places that that, that, I've, that I've been partners with or worked with, you know we usually have a pretty, pretty substantial purchasing power with these within, the, within these communities. With that comes a responsibility. you know, I think that we start with the obvious opportunities, whether it's menu or community need or community outreach. I'll give you an example. When I was the, the corporate executive chef for a small boutique hotel group in New England, we, we also had one property in Florida. And I would go down to Florida and, and kind of work there 10, 10 days out of, the, out of the month. And I'd travel between, you know, Martin's vineyard in Florida and all that stuff. So, But it, always, it was, it was almost very... I thought it was crazy that I, as I was driving to the property, you know, I would drive past all these produce stands and farm stands and all this other stuff, and then I get to the restaurant, and you know we're we're unloading lemons and oranges from Cisco truck, <laughs> you know, and and I understand, I get it, you know. There's the collaboration piece. There is is the important part. The responsible thing to do when it comes to supporting local agriculture is to really kind of get to know them the same way you would get to know your line cooks your dishwashers or whomever it is that you are working with, that's that's part of your team. And to understand what their goals are and how you can contribute to their growth through purchasing, or if it's if it's developing plans for, hey, listen, let's let's plan menus and these are the resources that we need. What can we do to help you with those resources? It's a balance not to exhaust the resources and to develop relationships with those farmers and producers, you know, I want to know their goals and not just buy everything they have because they, because I can. And it's also too, I mean, you can't, it's, it's not feasible at times, depending on the operation to do those things. You have to be creative in how you support, how you can maximize local support within the general expectation. It's everywhere. You just have to dig like that's you have to work for it. Chefs are in a very unique position to to be advocates for this kind of stuff that because no matter no matter what, if you think people aren't looking or aren't listening at whatever level, whether you're on a podcast or you're just operating your small uh, independent restaurant, is that, you know, if you say something's good, nine times out of 10, the consumer is going to take your word for it. Oh, I like this guy's food. Well, this guy really likes, you know, Bear Creek farm beef. Well, I need, I need to get some Bear Creek farm beef for my house too, you know? So it's really important how that trickle down advocacy works, not only for the, the farmer and the rancher, but then it also works for the restaurant to advocate those things for the community. It's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> not, not just making uh, sandwiches guys, you know,
1: so let's talk a little bit about your, your cooking and, and, you know, what you have done as well in the past. So the, the the overall picture, what are your sources of inspiration?
0: My sources of inspiration are usually, again, they, they come from kind of core values that simple is key, right? Simple is key and environment always wins and always dictates, you know, mm-hmm. it's like where, where, where are my feet? And that's where i am and that's kind of where the inspiration is you know my my heritage you know i know that that you know the name my name lavon wallace is a dead giveaway that i'm that i'm of mexican heritage right just like you you know i when i first heard your accent i thought i could have sworn that you were from alabama
1: absolutely a lot of people had confused that absolutely they said oh you have an Alabama accent so yeah
0: You clearly can go yeah, roll tide.
1: <laughs> I told you I never heard that before. That was the first time. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, I, I mean I joke, but 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 my 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 Mexican heritage, and I grew up in a Mexican household. My mother is Mexican. I don't I don't know any anything else but that. And I grew up eating those those foods. And you know, the the more I I I kind of dig my heels into it. I mean, it's 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 a complex, beautiful, beautiful cuisine, but it's also so. It's almost it's almost comical how some some of the technique that is there is is so almost um, primitive, and I think that's what makes it so damn good because it's it's elemental it's simple. So you know my my inspiration usually comes from keeping things as simple as possible, but then on top of that you you add the layers of experience you add the layers of environmental inspiration, right? Whether it's, you know, I'll never forget the first time I went to a farmer's market in San Francisco. I mean, it was like, I mean, it was like 3d, you know, kaleidoscope, you know, like what is going on here? Like, I've never seen a tomato that had more than, you know, that wasn't just red and wasn't a perfect, you know, ball, you know, at least coming from Los Angeles, California, at least where I was, where I grew up, we didn't have, we all we had were Roma tomatoes and they were ripe. You know? So it's I draw inspiration from environment. I draw inspiration from, you know, the, the elements and then just it's it's whatever's going on right then and there.
1: So you start with obviously the produce, but when you are thinking about your creative approach, what's what's the next step after? So you're talking about your heritage, you know, like Mexican, you know, heritage mm-hmm. as well, like the the locality of, you know, the where you are. Yeah. So can you explain to me on like, you know, like the different steps on your on creative process when you are created, creating a dish?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And as you, as you mentioned, you know, you kind of made this podcast a little, a little more complicated than it used to be. It's kind of as much as I talk about keeping things simple, I <laughs> wish that I could keep things simple up here in my head because I can't. Um, no, no,
1: that's fine. And I, I don't want as well to intellectualize like the conversation, but I think, it is interesting, you know, for me, it's always I go to a restaurant and I always look at the menu. I always pick something that I do not know, I never experienced before, something that intrigued me. And my first thing that comes to my mind when, of course, I am enjoying the dish, of yeah. course, you know, it, it's a moment of pleasure. But I, there's always something in back of my mind to say, like, what was the original like idea you know, behind it? And how did the chef... You know, came up with this. What was like the different step that he took to create this outstanding experience for me?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I understand 100%. On the back end, for me, it's the same way because if I'm, if I'm inspired by something or if I'm being, I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a, you know, kind of, you know, free form, loose and creative mood to, to, to come up with a dish, I can be a little bit of an extremist. And I, I tend to obsess and I want to, I want to learn about this ingredient, where did it come from? How, you know, how has it been made before this, this particular dish? I want to, I want to practice it. I want to unpack it. I want to unfold it, whatever it is that I'm doing, you know, I'm kind of like a kid that takes apart a radio to see how it works on the inside. You know, and that's, that's exactly how, when I, when I first came across the American South, it was the same thing. I want to, you know, why are tamales in Mississippi the way that they are? You know, when I'm when I'm in when I was in New England and I had a, a stuffed uh, stuffed cohog for the first time, you know, like where where does this dish come from? Why you know, what's this Portuguese influence that that is in New England? Okay, let's let's explore this Portuguese influence. And so I just like I fill my head with all this information just to be able to 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 tell myself to relax and just have fun with it. At the end of the day it's kind of a weird you know yin and yang that goes on with the creative process but i don't know man this is how i am you know i genuinely love not only to cook right like there's there's something so like special about the, the act of cooking it's almost like everything just kind of melts away and it's you and and what it is that you're you're making at that point—it's alchemy, really, when you think about it, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna turn this potato into something really delicious and amazing. And it's it's just this, I don't know, man. It's 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 hard to it's addictive for me that that I kind of I forget that there's somebody on the other side like you that's like, wow, what is this thing? How did he come up with this dish? Or what's your favorite dish to make? I don't know. They're all my favorite dishes to make.
1: Let's think about, you know, maybe like some of the most unusual association that you have created. You see, you have, you know, you have this West Coast background, you know, you are in in the South You know now, so I'm sure there's things that are, you know, in the mind of someone else looking from the outside, maybe are conflicting, but you know, that's maybe like the opposite attracts if you want in terms of the concept. Sure. You know, things that that maybe sweet flavors that you're putting in a savory dish or or the reverse or if there's any I, I'm always curious to discuss with, you know, chefs about some of those most unusual associations because they come from a different genre and people will never think about. But in fact at the end it's outstanding. I mean,
0: obviously, I have, I've never invented anything, right? Because we we're all always borrowing and improvising and doing all these things. But there was this one particular festival that I was at, I think, about two years ago in Arkansas. And I was going to make, originally, I was going to make salsa matcha, which is, you know, pre Hispanic, kind of an oil-based salsa. Usually, it's like dried seeds and dried chilies and, and oil. And like, out of nowhere, I was like, it, it hit me. I'm like, oh, you know, it's really good. It's like chili crisp Chinese. This is, this is very similar to Chinese chili crisp. You know, the, the one with the, the angry little lady on the, on the picture there on the, on the label. And I just so happened to be making some smoked chickens at the time for this dish. I was going to do a, like a chicken tostada thing. And I'd smoke the chickens and I'd pulled the skins off and, and and I threw all the skins in, in the deep fryer. They were going to be a snack for, you know, the staff or whatnot. So th- then all, there it goes. I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute. Now here we have this like Southern American and, and arguably African dish, right? With, with the bar- barbecued smoked meat and chicken for that matter. No, so here's that. And then there's this, you know, Mexican idea, which was the salsa matcha. But then we then took it and and gave it a, a nod to the Chinese chili crisp. And so what we ended up doing is we took those fried smoked chicken skins, which basically was a, a chicken chicharrones at that point. Ooh, okay. And we took those chicken chicharrones and we busted those up and we made the salsa matcha, both the inclusion of fried peanuts and fried soybeans and and fried sesame seeds, along with the dried chilies, and and the herbs and the fried garlic, and combined it all to make this what I call it Mexican chili crisp. And what it was, it was it was fried chicken skins, fried peanuts, fried sesame, fried dried chilies, and it was this beautiful umami, crunchy, smoky, spicy condiment that we ended up serving with this chicken tostada and to give it another notch to the African culture, a little bit of preserved watermelon. So the preserved watermelon and the, and the smoked chicken gave it a nod to the Southern African roots, the chilies and the kind of salsa matcha base, but then the peanuts and sesame gave it the Asian. But it was just, it was, it was Chinese Southern Mexican without being annoying, without being weird. It was just delightful.
1: Are you okay to go into like the rapid fire question now? Yeah, order okay. fire. absolutely. So you and I are going into a tasting tour in Nashville, and obviously, you know, this is not thinking about that we are in a pandemic. So, what are like the five spots that you will take me to?
0: We have a beautiful uh, Kurdish community here, so I would take you to one of one of a couple amazing. Kurdish bakeries and restaurants, and it's all it's it's going to be things that you you're not going to think Nashville, right? We have a place called King Market, which is my one of my favorite restaurants, and it's in the back of an Asian supermarket. It's a small it's a small little cafe, legitimately some of the best Lao Thai food that I've ever had. You know, there's there's some there's a couple of places that I would you would have to you would have to that are so quintessentially Nashville I would take you to to your first meet and three experience you know which is this kind of you know cafeteria style Arnold's meet and three for example which is you know legendary and they do it right right so what is normally like you know you think cafeteria style and you think of like really gross you know food from a can where no these guys are using they're they're tapping into the community resources as much as possible you know, I would definitely, I would take you to get the best biscuit of your life by my friends Carl and Sarah Worley and, and their chef Lisa White. You know, they they have a place called Biscuit Love, and they do an amazing job. You know, there's Nashville is becoming so much like you know, such a melting pot, just like Los Angeles. I said, you know, is you know, you can some of the best you can get some of the best pizza. You know, like. Like I've got a friend who has a, a place called St. Vito's Pizzeria, and he's making world-class Sicilian-style pizza in Nashville. You know, very good.
1: So, yeah. Thank you. So, what's your favorite guilty pleasure food?
0: I really like to take a pack of Mama instant Ram- ramen noodles.
1: Oh yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, Ma- Mama brand. And I, f- I follow the directions minus, minus a little bit of the water. And in the last, the last minute of cooking, I crack one egg into the pot and I poach my egg in the broth. Uh-huh. In the last 30 seconds. I take one slice of American cheese and I put it right on top. Okay. And more, more than more likely than not, I have some, some bacon that's been cooked. I chop a little bit of bacon and I put a big handful of green onions and I have this like, bacon egg and cheese ramen thing that is and if i have some mexican chili crisp in the fridge it's really really good <laughs>
1: you put that on top okay put that On top. yeah yeah absolutely What well, like like the three cookbooks that inspire you the most in your career
0: oh wow the american masters are have always been a really big inspiration right like there's some really really i mean i have way too many cookbooks Right. Most, most of my colleagues do. I'm sure that you do too. But like, it's, it's like the Patrick O'Connell's and the, and the Charlie Palmer's and the, and the, and the, gosh, the Charlie Trotter, you know, like I, I had the pleasure of staging there and it's stuff that like, I, I flew myself out and on my 27th birthday to stage at Charlie Trotter's, I got there at 11 o'clock in the morning, in the morning and I left that night the next morning. It was like three or four in the morning. We're done with service. And that was it. That was my birthday present to myself at 27 years old was to go to Charlie Trotter's because I, I love all of the American masters. So I think that the Charlie Trotter cookbook, the original French, French laundry cookbook, and the Ariole cookbook to me when the, the Ariel cookbook was like, you know, that was, that was our Michelle Bross at the time. You know, like that was our Pierre Gagné. That was our like, like, oh, wow, this is, this is happening. This is great.
1: What's your biggest pet peeves in the kitchen?
0: Oh, how much time do you got?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I said the biggest, (laughs) not all of them.
0: (laughs) Right. I'm going to focus on on the pet pet peeves, the really like little petty stuff, right? Like, no, I haven't seen it in a long time. but Like people that like when you're using a peeler over the trash can, like this drives me crazy. It drives me so crazy. Like, what are you doing? Like, it's your station. Is your is your, is a trash can your station? No. But now let's get a little more current, a little more 2021. One of my biggest pet peeves in the kitchen is, you know the old the old mentality that this is what we do this is how we do you know like there, there's a little more include there's a lot more inclusion a lot more understanding to work and life balance so it's not a pet peeve that we're there it's i'm rather it's a pet peeve that we used to be there and that that sometimes people tend to gravitate back towards that i'm excited and hopeful for the the new ideology that that you know you It doesn't have to be this horrible life experience for it to be the grand cuisine, you know. No more yelling, yelling and screaming in the kitchen. Don't like oh, and excessive cussing. I don't like excessive cussing in the kitchen. Don't like it.
1: Okay. Don't like it. Final question. So, beside the classics like mayo, mustard, and so on, what condiments, spices, or sauces do you like to have on hand in at home?
0: You said besides mayo because i i want to touch base on that i'm a little bit of a, of a mayo file and i always have at least two sometimes three different kinds of mayonnaise in the in the fridge yeah and I, and i think that they're all they all lend themselves different things you know like i think that that duke's mayonnaise is absolutely delicious you know but i also think that blue plate mayonnaise Makes a, a wonderful po' boy, and and southern. It's a little sweeter, so it, it lends itself better to southern style sandwiches. And, and, and QP is just delicious on cold pizza. I just can't have. That's one of my favorite pizza. The shittier the pizza, the better too. But in in, in as far as condiments, you you know you'll find a pretty extensive selection in my in my Asian pantry. There's always some kind of, you know, it, it's almost too much. I mean, just every every
1: sauce, you know, all of that.
0: Everything, yeah, and then there's and then there's the other pantry, which is like the homemade pantry, whether it's dried mushrooms that we found when we were hiking, or salted or preserved vegetables or fruits. A lot of that. I love that part of Southern culture. I know that it exists in every culture, but I get very excited in the spring and summer months here. Not. So much about what's coming in fresh, but rather what's that going to look like, and what's it going to what can I turn it into to put in a can for me to eat in the summer, or I'm sorry, okay. in the fall.
1: Okay. So you do a lot of foraging.
0: Do as, as much foraging as as we can. I'm always. I mean, who doesn't like free food? <laughs> you know,
1: there's you just food. need to know what you're doing. But I'm sure you, you do. You
0: know, but, there's, but there's a lot of there's there's, there's opportunities everywhere. I mean, like. Obviously, it's it's important that you read and that you know what you're doing, but you'd be surprised how most of the country has oyster mushrooms in their little walkways and paths. Mm-hmm. Or, or woodier mushrooms are an abundance here in the southeast. Yeah. Ramps, wild onions, lilies mm-hmm. uh, yeah, wild garlic out here.
1: So, Oh, really? Yeah. Which one, the green or the purple?
0: But, no, yeah. you, you can find them both.
1: Both, okay. Yeah, Very cool. Chef, thank you so much. Uh, Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. It was a very uh, enlightening conversation.
0: Well, it's very kind of you to say that, Emmanuel. It It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having us.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast with Chef Levin Wallace from Nashville, Tennessee. You can find the show notes of this episode on the website flavorsunknown.com and please follow us on Instagram or Facebook at flavors unknown. If you like this episode, please share it with a colleague or a friend. You can do it directly from your phone. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, click to the purple circle with the three white dots, click share, and then send it via text message If you are listening on Spotify, just click on the three white dots and scroll down to the share option and then share it as a text message. Thank you so much. Next week, my guest is going to be someone completely different from all the guests I had until now. I had the opportunity to interview the food critic John Mariani from New York City. John Mariani is an author and journalist of 30 years standing. He has begun his career at the New York Magazine. He has written as well in the Esquire Magazine and in the Huffington Post. So with Mr. Mariani, we are going to hear about the different type of food critics. How did he start his uh, career? And what made him interested in writing about restaurants, chefs, and food? He is going to share with us how he sees the future of the restaurant industry And if the time of gastronomy and fine dining is over. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people.
0: Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.